if you try to control the price of rent, then you disincentivize building. And the number one problem we have in housing in this country is a lack of supply. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how's the great city of New York? City of New York, it's it's good. We had some warmer weather. Oh, it was here we literally go like weather. five We're degrees. Back. Well, no, but We're truly, back. it was actually kind of interesting. It went from like five degrees to 50 degrees. So I don't know. That was that was pretty shocking in like 24 hours span. Yeah, it's funny. I've been monitoring the weather because I've been subletting my apartment and I don't mm-hmm. have insulation in my apartment. Uh, in the ceiling. This is going to just lead to more concerned voicemails about me. <laughs> I, get, <laughs> I get an abnormal amount of concerned voicemails. I think our listeners are alternatively Ozempic, confused. Ozempic, but no insulation. I know. They're confused about my lifestyle. <laughs> Interesting. It, it tells you everything you need to know about me. Uh, but uh-huh. I have no insulation in my roof and I'm subletting my apartment. And I was very clear with the person who's subletting my apartment that there's no insulation in the roof. And I was so worried about him. And I told him I'd refund him at any point if it got too cold. And he's just been like, it's been great. Like, so I was just telling me, like, it must not be that cold in New York City because he's been like, it's truly terrible when it gets, it drops below freezing in that apartment. And so far, yeah, you got a tough renter. But I mean, I think it was just such a short period of time that it was just, it went freezing cold and then back to normal that maybe it was just a quick enough chill that he made it through. All right. Well, We've got a pretty fun episode today, but I got a couple of announcements to talk about. One is we've got a new show that's dropping tomorrow, and it's the show called Sweat the Technique. And it's a show that I'm doing with a bunch of veteran educators who have been really successful uh, in K-12 education, and in some cases outside of education. And we talk about how we apply lessons learned in the K-12 system to things like hobbies, sports, parenting, relationships, learning new skills, being a manager. And one of my main co-hosts is is this guy named Doug Lamov, who wrote like all the seminal teaching books that transformed the way I thought about teaching. And then now has gone on to coach uh, coach the coaches of Premier League soccer and American soccer and rugby. And so he's basically now coaching sports teams. And so our first episode is an interview I do with him. And so you can go to Sweat the Technique. That episode is dropping tomorrow, which would be uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, if you want to know about just my educational philosophy, like at the the base level, like what it is I truly believe about schools and how to teach teachers to be really excellent. That'll show you a lot about that, but also about things I've learned along the way about managing people and learning new skills, et cetera. It's it's an awesome episode. Uh, We also have an episode of Regressives, which will be uh, dropping in this podcast feed on Sunday. I interviewed Benjamin Applebaum from the New York Times, and it's actually an extension of a conversation we're going to start today. So he talks all about housing and why we don't have uh, affordable housing in this country and actually offers some rays of hope for those of us who've been railing on California. So that's a, that's a that'll very much be a companion piece to some of the discussions we have today. Oh, I'll take a breath, Ricky. Shall we encourage our, our listeners to send us more voicemails? Yeah, if you if you want to voice some concerns about Ravi's lifestyle choices, no please more call. of those. <laughs> I don't need any more of those. Uh, Three, if, two, if, one, two, zero, about, zero. This episode is about you, Ricky. We'll get. I think the second mm. segment. So if you have any problems with anything yeah. Ricky says in the second segment of this episode, please send in voicemails, 321 um, Leave me alone for this one. I'm, I need to take a breath. Uh, okay. Mm. 
I, I don't know. I think I'm the less problematic character in this narrative, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see about that. Let the, All right, let so the speaking of decide. Ricky took to the pages of the Post to discuss the downsides of birth control. We're going to talk about that. A new form of school choice is spreading through state houses and really transforming the experience of a lot of parents in this country. It's only now getting a lot of attention, and we're going to parse through the data about what's going on and whether it's truly good for kids. But first, a discussion of rent control. From small towns to major cities, the cost of rent is sky high. We have people struggling to keep a roof over their heads. The White House announced a new plan to fight rising prices. The federal government has a role to play in intervening in the power imbalance between tenants and landlords. Nationwide rent control that some of them want, is that right? Well, it's a bad word, Stuart, rent control. It's not just the rent control, but if you prevent people from building new housing, guess what you're going to get? Less housing. Well, I agree with some of the concerns about the potential of national rent control. And what this is coming from is something that the Biden administration put out called the Blueprint for Renters' Bills of Rights, which is um, basically making good on their housing campaign promises and picking up on some lobbying from Democrats on this issue. But essentially, all this is is really a plan to make a plan, more or less. It has a variety of components, including like ensuring safety and quality in housing, um, and fair leases, enhancement of renter rights, right to organize, et cetera. But there's one part that kind of raised some eyebrows here where they said tenant protections, they want to explore tenant protections, including policies that limit egregious rent increases at properties with enterprise-backed mortgages going forward. So um, even though this says as well, that this is not binding and does not itself constitute U.S. government policy. That does seem like um, some entertainment of some form of national rent control, specifically in regards to buildings with federally backed mortgages. Um, So this is even though the word rent control did not appear anywhere, it seems like certainly a suggestion that that might be something that's um, bouncing around in the Biden White House mind. Yeah. And there are different forms of rent control. So there's what's called first generation rent controls, which are basically like a strict price ceiling or, or, you know, pretty like widespread rent freezes. And then there's the more common approach, which is very common, especially in New York City, for example, which is the second generation rent controls, which sometimes are called rent stabilization, where they essentially slice and dice the different experiences of renters and and uh, and landlords, saying like, all right, if it's a if it's a new build, there are certain rules. If it's an if it's an older building, uh, we're going to moderate rent increases. But when a tenant leaves, you can increase the rent. So there are different kinds of rent controls. So and we can go into some of those, but let me let me talk about just to lay out the case uh, for why we should be careful about rent control. And there's this Swedish economist who once said that rent control is the fastest way to destroy a city other than bombing, which is probably too hyperbolic here. But essentially what he and other economists have pointed out is that if you set a price ceiling below what the market price would be for any good, then you reduce the incentive for people to create that good, which is why you don't see a Mm -hmm. lot of price ceilings in the United States on anything, right? Like we've, if you're a student of history, you know that in a lot of these sort of communist friendly countries, they used to set prices for certain commodities. And very often that will lead to a lot of unintended side effects and chaos. And so, uh, 
the other main criticism, and this is the one that, and this is a related criticism, and the one that really speaks to me, is that if you try to control the price of rent, then you disincentivize building. And the number one problem we have in housing in this country is a lack of supply. And so when I spoke to Benjamin Applebaum, who we have a full interview airing on Sunday about the larger issues of housing supply, he's somebody who is very progressive and I would say very aggressive about what we need to do about housing supply. So he's the kind of person who really thinks a lot about the homeless, the people who can't afford rent, et cetera. And he seems fairly skeptical of rent control. Let's go to that clip. I have a lot of misgivings about rent control uh, because I think that uh, markets are really valuable uh, mechanisms for sharing information. And what I mean is that market prices in a real estate market are providing information to people who might build new housing about the extent of demand for that housing, uh, about what kind of housing they should build, how much they should charge for it. Uh, and and rent control policies have the effect of of making it harder uh, for developers to get that information. Uh, they can also uh, affect the ability of developers to construct housing uh, that is profitable. It can, you know, when it's improper, it's very difficult to do well. Uh, some might even say impossible. Uh, and if it's done poorly, which has been the predominant experience of rent control policies, it can have the effect of suppressing development. Um, which is exactly the opposite of what we want to be doing in many of these communities. Um, so for me, uh, a better set of policies to address the problems that I think rent control advocates are correctly identifying uh, is to increase the availability of government subsidies for people who can't afford housing. Uh, what are called Section 8 vouchers are currently available to you know, uh, less than less than well, less than half of, of the people who are theoretically eligible to receive them. That ought to be a universal entitlement. It ought to be the case that if you can't afford housing, the government helps you to be able to afford housing. And you need to marry that to an expansion of the housing supply instead of trying to if, if what you're doing in a community is freezing the housing supply and freezing the price of that housing, you're just imitating what suburbs do. You're creating a private club for the group of people who are lucky enough to live there, and you're excluding everyone else. And what we need to be doing in these communities is expanding the group of people who are able to live in these places. And, and the way that we do that is by encouraging development uh, and helping people who can't afford market rates uh, to live in these places with government assistance. So I'm going to say that I definitely am going to agree with uh, both of you on this issue, but just to kind of steel man the other side a little bit here, there is an important conversation to be had about how much more difficult it has become to rent in pretty short order over the past couple of years. Um, right now, a third of the American population rents. Um, there are nearly a million evictions annually and rent went up 23.5% from October of 2019 to October of 2022. And a lot of that is predicated on the pandemic and, you know, the, a lot of disruptions in the natural market there, like a place like New York, people were shifting and moving here and there on the basis that all of a sudden they could get these pandemic deals and then they can't afford them. And so the market has been very turbulent. But then there's also the fact that entry level home construction fell um, in the 2008 recession and hasn't recovered to levels as it was before. However, I think 
imposing any sort of rent control, especially on new properties is the worst thing that you can possibly do to fix the supply issue. Because why as a developer, would you decide to invest your money and your time and your effort into a city that sees you as some sort of like hostile pariah that's trying to take advantage of its citizens and prevent you from actually, um, take appreciating, taking the appreciation from that asset at market value. I mean, I think there's a pretty perfect test case for why rent control is not a great idea, which comes from the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, where both cities voted for rent control. Um, and then Minneapolis ended up not actually, um, going through with it. They didn't impose it while St. Paul did and did not give an exemption for any new buildings. And so over that period of time, Building permits for Minneapolis went up by 65% over the span of three winters and St. Paul's went down by 61%. So the development and the developers just moved to the other city where they could develop freely. And I mean, it's, it's case in point that this will just only go on to distort the free market of housing even more, even if it does in a way feel like the ethical and right thing to say, you shouldn't be able to extort renters. Um, the only, you know, the, the market cap on extortion is just how much people are willing to bear in, in the reality of your market. I do think that there are, um, probably some egregious examples of rent hikes that resulted post pandemic, but that's also the product of the fact that there were some unbelievable tumblings of, of rental prices as a result as well. Yeah. And I think like when people who are progressive hear things like the free market, that does not sway them. And so one big project that I've been on lately and for the past few years is trying to reframe the issue. So we've had a couple of conversations with Connor Doherty of the New York Times who's written about this issue. This Applebaum in, uh, interview is part of that conversation as well. And part of what I'm trying to do is, is talk about this trying to use progressive values, which is essentially when you talk about supply, demand, free market, stuff like that, it just doesn't land with people, right? And so part of it is I'm trying to layer on the data and there's pretty, you know, I would say convincing data on the supply issue, which we'll get to. But then it's like, you try to, we have to like battle opportunity hoarding in a way, right? Which is, I think a lot of progressives see themselves as wanting to open up the door of opportunity for people who are more vulnerable. And so I think the more that, like when speaking to progressives, we frame it in that sense, because they, they just aren't swayed by the free market language, the better. And so I'm trying to workshop this, but I think there's one, given our audience, I want to give them some data because they're always looking for the data. There were three Stanford economists who had a 2019 paper that focused on rent control in San Francisco. And this paper gives people who are for and against rent control something to hang their hat on. So the people who are for rent control, there's an interesting finding that 10 to 20% uh, people are 10 to 20% more likely if they're beneficiaries of this program to remain in their homes in the medium to long term. And it seems like a lot of the data shows this across many cities, which is rent control, absolutely, even sloppy versions of it can keep people in their homes. Uh, the downside is that it suppressed supply. So landlords are directly affected by rent control pivoted away towards rental, providing rental units, and they reduced available rental housing by 15%. And according to the authors of this paper, quote, likely drove up citywide rents, damaging housing affordability for future renters, end quote. And we could see this. If you look at San Francisco, it is a very 
it is an unhospitable place. It has major homelessness issues, major affordability issues. And if you couple that with another economist from Brigham Young University named David Sims, he shows what I think a, a bunch of other people have criticized rent control for, which is that the relatively richer people are more likely to benefit from rent control. We see this in New York City, for example. And the Urban Institute adds on more data to say that, and particularly black and brown families um, are not accessing rent control as much as white families. And so that starts to tilt it in favor for me against rent control. I'm sure there is a version of it that I would be supportive of if it were really narrowly tailored in the right market. But I think it's often done, as Apple Mom said, sloppily and has you know these unintended consequences that actually suppress supply and make housing less affordable. Yeah, just anecdotally, seeing how it's played out in New York City, like going on Street Easy, which is like, I guess our local version of Zillow, it's just bizarre. There are just random units and random buildings that are just price fixed for all of eternity. And you see people who like get something, get an apartment that's um, rent controlled from their parents and they're just living for like virtually free right. and beautiful, ma massive apartments. And it just, it the way that it's rolled out here has been fundamentally just like unjust and very unequal. Um, yeah, and, and how many of and those the, people are, are the downtrodden? How many of those people are vulnerable? Not many. Yeah. And like you see these, you see these listings go up once in a blue moon of a rent controlled apartment. And then it's gone in like two seconds yeah. because it's just, it makes absolutely no sense the way that we've rolled it out. I think there are probably more sensible versions that maybe tie it to um, the rate of inflation or something like that. But I do think that, I mean, I, I, I'm a free market girl, so I'm not in the progressive camp where I'm allergic to that as a justification, even though I do think at times um, people can be extorted a little bit by their landlords. There's certainly truth in that. Um, making it easier and more sustainable long-term to be a renter to me is not a solution. I'd rather see more effort being put into helping people secure home ownership and mortgages, but you know, yeah. that's just me. I think by and large, we have a lot of agreement here though. Yeah. And, and, you know, getting back to the progressive conversation, it's amazing to me, you know, there's this letter that Elizabeth Warren and Jamal Bowman sent to the White House and signed on by a lot of members of Congress. And they're basically pushing the White House to take a more aggressive tack on rents. And there's just like a vague throwaway line to the supply issue. And I think this is in part because it's really hard to frame this for people who are like, because they, they're so trained to think of the, the landlord as evil and the developer yeah. as evil. And often as, as people will hear on Sunday and, and uh, Benjamin does a really good job of laying this out. Opposition to new development is cloaked in environmental concerns. There's this town in you know Woodside, California, where they they claimed that they were a sanctuary for like coyotes or something or mountain lions. Like so, like they're, they're cloaking their anti-development stuff in we're going after the big bad, we're protecting the environment and all that. New York is mm -hmm. such an interesting case study, by the way, that you said you, you should mention. We'll link in the show notes to this article from the city in October. So New York two years ago passed even more strict, I would say rent stabilization uh, measures. I, I wouldn't go to call as like control, but uh, there's been this interesting side effect where the landlords have been accused of warehousing their apartments, basically protesting this measure where you have tens of thousands of rent stabilized units off the market right now. And so, yeah. uh, and it's growing. And what seems to be happening, and people could read this article because 
you're kind of having to read the tea leaves and I think it's really good reporting where they didn't they didn't try to go so far as to say exactly what the motive here is but it seems like landlords were just kind of pissed in New York City they don't want to release these apartments into the market which is crazy if you think about how like restricted supply in New York City has been over the past few years and they're fighting these rent laws the price restrictions in courts, and they're currently up to the Court of Appeals, the Second Circuit, and this could go all the way to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court could rule on some of these rent stabilization and rent control laws. And, you know, this this weird protest going on in New York, I'm not sure I'm sympathetic to anybody who doesn't put uh, apartments onto the market because it's needed. I think they should be forced to, but I also think it's crazy how uh, labyrinthian the processes for a lot of these people to try to get approved to build in the city. Yeah. I also think there's just this like general sense that every landlord is some big mega landlord that right. owns hundreds of buildings. And there are a ton of people who just rent out a few units here or there or rent out a unit that they have that happens to be a part of like a building that they own in general. And that's a major source of their income. And so I think that, um, you know, I'm it's I'm sensitive to both sides of this debate, but I do think that there is a greater deal of humanity in landlords that maybe from time to time we might benefit to look into yes. a little bit, especially post pandemic. It's been pretty tough for a lot of people who were depending on that as a major stream of income. But yeah, yeah. I think I don't let's not let me, a lot of daylight between us here. <laughs> yeah, let me underline that though, because I, I had these debates with a lot of my friends and a lot of candidates I helped elect in New York City who are anti-landlord. And I remember talking to a buddy of mine uh, who, who's a host on another podcast that we have, Chris Marte, who's our city council member in District 1 in New York City, so he represents Lower Manhattan. And he and I used to talk all the time about this. And because the landlords in the neighborhood that we lived in are immigrants, a lot of them. So a lot of mm -hmm. them are Chinese immigrants, a lot of them are Italian immigrants. Now that's changing. Private equity groups are swooping in and buying all these things. But I would love to see some politicians talk about protecting these people as small business owners. And I think what often happened for a lot of these people is they're viewed as these gazillionaires because a lot of them might be families that bought a building. Like we have these this listeners um, from Brooklyn, this family, the Rogostas, if they're listening, shout out to them, who own a couple of apartment buildings and the dad came over from Italy back in the day and he was an engineer and he bought a couple of buildings. And then those buildings appreciated. And he's got a lot of... Uh, he's got a lot of buildings that have appreciated. And from what I gather, he has made it his mission to keep the people in the neighborhood in his buildings. Uh, and he's like a progressive, he votes democratic and, but like the laws have gotten harder and harder and harder for him. And so when he does have tenants who are irresponsible or he does want to make repairs to the building, it's getting harder and harder and harder for him to do it. And politicians are painting him as the bad guy where he's like, look, I'm like trying to keep the integrity of this neighborhood. I'm just a guy who came over here trying to make it. I'm not a gazillionaire. I live in the same house I've always lived in. And so it's like the... I do think that we're trying to create boogeymen where they don't exist. And there truly are boogeymen out there, but they're not the mom and pops. And I would love to find some way to distinguish between the two. Yeah, we'll add in the show notes. There was a great video that Reason Magazine did that um, kind of shed light on some of the humanity that you're discussing there that I highly recommend um, during the depths of the pandemic. But 
Yeah, and of course, like to caveat, there are like there are profiles, there are versions of the Rogostas that are bad to their tenants, right? And then we need to distinguish between the two of them for sure. Like, so I don't want to skate past that because I've had landlords like that, <laughs> but I don't want to paint like like I lost a bit. We don't paint anybody with a broad brush, right? So I don't want to paint the landlords as like this, you know, one size fits all group. All right, Ricky. Well, as I, as what do I say? We're doing a 180 to get my math correctly here. A 180, sure. Yeah. All right. So a 90 degree turn. <laughs> I'm going to try to be as unawkward to word that maybe not doesn't exist as possible in this segment, but I can't guarantee I'm going to succeed. There's absolutely nothing awkward left for me. I went on Ben Shapiro's show to talk about going off the birth control pill, so it's all it's open. Whatever. I, I do want to say, I think in listening to this clip, like, let's just play his intro to this, just so our audience, I, I, I want to <laughs> give this you a hard time. Well, one, one of the things that's kind of fascinating here is how much of a third rail this has become. And it really is. It's almost a political third rail that if you mention that there are side effects to taking the birth control pill, which, by the way, many of these have been known about for a very long time, like they're listed among the side effects. But if you talk about this, then somehow it means that you are sort of an uber religious fanatic. And you just oppose birth control generally, or you're only saying this because you oppose birth control generally. This is regular speed, everybody. Regular speed. He's an efficient man. I give him credit. Unbelievable. There's nothing wrong with it. Yes. Okay. So it's a good segue. So you wrote this piece in the New York Post. A really fascinating piece about your personal decision uh, uh, to go off of birth control and how it dovetails with the decisions that so many women are making right now. Where should we even start here? Like what what was the causation here? So to the audience, like did you first start having this thought and then you decided to write this article or yeah. did it kind of happen in tandem? So I, you know, during the pandemic locked down, not really utilizing the birth control aspect of my birth control pill, I was thinking a little more about like what does taking this exogenous hormone actually do to my body? I had more downtime to think about it. Um and to just doubt that that's necessarily the best idea for me as someone who was prescribed it when I was 14 or 15 for acne. And you know what? And I, I foresee that in periods of my life, it's a medication that I will be back on, but I, I don't know that I like the idea of being on it from 14 to menopause or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, so I started thinking more critically, kind of put that in the back of my mind. And then all of a sudden I started noticing in New York and like in my friend groups, very, di- I have very diverse friends, totally different political backgrounds, friends from NYU, friends from growing up, friends from work all over the place. So many of my friends started expressing the same concerns and doubts because there is a huge trend that if you had bad period cramps when you were young, if you had acne when you were going through puberty, that you would just get prescribed the pill because it it did help. It did make it better. But um, a lot of us never went off it. And then we had the free time to kind of think about it a little bit more. And I think there has been a cultural shift um, in tandem with like shifts in, in terms of women demanding that there should be labels on tampons if they're treated with bleach and like just like a general um, increased intention about our health and our well-being and what we're putting into our body that I think the pandemic catalyzed, that I think um, social media definitely um, helped to spur along. There's a lot of talk on TikTok. And so when I realized that was a trend, I went down a rabbit hole and found out that it's a lot more than just me and my friend group. But there's there's a phase shift. Yeah, let's go into those numbers. So 
anecdotally, everything you're saying makes sense. And then you layer in the data and it's like, all right, this isn't just your experience. So lay it out for us. How many people, like in, like how widespread has the usage been? And how, like what, what's the data telling us about people in your shoes, like who are starting to come off of this? Yeah. So we don't really have national data at the moment. Um, we do know that between 2002 and 2017, which is a while back, there was a 9% decrease in um, birth control pill usage. The latest numbers are to come, but I spoke to um, a variety of OBGYNs and doctors and people in this world who say that there's definitely been a phase shift in recent years and a greater um, concern that women have about hormonal birth control issues specific specifically. Um, I spoke to an NYU Langhorne OBGYN who said that she's seen that a lot, especially Gen Z, that there tends to be a little bit of a generational shift there, which I think makes sense because we are the people who didn't just go on the pill. Like as soon as we became sexually active, we went on the pill to mitigate like symptoms of puberty, which in retrospect, when I think back when I was 14, I acne's acne, you're 14. I don't know that that's a reason to get on a pill that eventually you might actually need to be or very much want to be on, but not feel like you've already been on it for mm -hmm. a decade. You know, I think that yep. was kind of the place where I felt. Um, and so there's, there's a general Gen Z sense that maybe there are better methods or other methods, or maybe we just want to take a break post pandemic from the pill right. and just see what the world looks like without exogenous hormones impacting our brain. I think there's like a, a misconception that it's just your, your reproductive system that is affected by the birth control pill. But of course, so much of what we experience about the world around us is based on our hormonal composition and hormonal reactions to stressors and to different things in the environment. So of course, there's going to be some differences experientially if you go off the pill. And so you spoke to some OBGYNs. You also spoke yeah. to this this woman named Dr. Hill uh, who wrote this book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. And, and I believe she's a psychologist by training. Is that right? Yeah, she's a research psychologist. Yep. And she lays out, I think, her case pretty succinctly. The pill has been a really amazing force in the lives of women. And because of this, questioning or, or thinking critically about the birth control pill can scare people by making them think that we'll have to go back to the time when women were financially dependent on men and lose some of our freedom, right? Despite the fact that knowledge is always powerful, right? And talking critically about the birth control pill doesn't mean that we have to give it up. So, and this was a TED talk to be clear. Mm -hmm. So Ricky, rank orders, and talking to all these doctors, before we get to your personal experience, rank order for, for our audience, what what side effects you are most convinced of and concerned about to like the least right now, where you probably have the least amount of data about whether it's really true or not? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's all a very personal cost benefit analysis. I don't, I'm not planning to be off the pill for the rest of my life. That's not my vantage point here. And I'm not saying that anyone should stop taking it because of this podcast or anything like that, but yeah, we do not I offer say, medical advice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would say the most concerning on a national level, like in terms of just any kind of woman, any age demographic who's on the pill is cortisol response, um, which has actually been, this has been documented in scientific literature since the nineties, but, um, Essentially, women, when you when you experience a stressful situation, your cortisol goes up, which tends to give it a bad rap. And you think of it as a stress hormone and something that you don't want, but it's actually designed to help you deal with stressors and react appropriately. And so that's a healthy, normal response that you you would hope that your brain would have to stress. If and you're no, just to pause you on that, by the way, uh, really good, good point to make. There's this woman named Dr. Kelly McGonigal 
uh, who wrote the book called The Upside of Stress. She's a Stanford professor. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's actually our second episode of Sweat the Technique. So if, if, if the point Ricky made is, is a bit controversial to you, listen to that second episode because we spent an hour on that claim, like the idea that stress isn't necessarily always bad. And she convinced me, Kelly McGonigal convinced me. Yeah. So, and we'll, we'll put her TED talk also in the show notes because she succinctly summarizes that point too. Sorry, yeah. Ricky, keep going. No, no worries. Like, yeah, if you, I mean, if you have a stressor in front of you and a, a direct threat, you'd hope that your evolutionary brain would function healthy in a healthy, normal way. If you're a trauma survivor or a PTSD survivor, you're, cortisol response to a stressful situation will be severely diminished. And that's also the case for women on the birth control pill, which is shocking to me. No one, I've never heard that. Um, and yet that has been known for decades now. Um, the kind of interesting part that Dr. Hill mentions is that the only reason that she found that out is because she was reading a study about, um, stress related to socioeconomic class or something completely separate. And in the footnotes, she noticed that they said, Oh, and by the way, we had to throw out all of the the, um, data that we had from women on the birth control pill because they didn't have a cortisol response to stress. And it's like, that's not something to just gloss over or like prance past. Like to me, that's a very important and, um, you know, we don't really know what the the consequences of that are. Um, but I think that's something to think about. It's, it's certainly interesting that there's a cortisol response that looks more like a trauma survivor than a healthy young woman otherwise. Um, so that's for me on the national level or the, or the general level, like, if you're a woman on the pill, it's something to consider that your stress responses might be warped. Um, but to me, the number one most important thing is the, I think the, the utility of birth control for very young girls who are not sexually active, um, has been, it's just, I, I, I urge caution to parents who are putting their extremely young daughters on the pill, um, before the age of 19, your brain is still technically in an adolescent phase. And if you were to look at a scan of my brain right now, you'd be able to tell that I was on the pill based on density differences um, with memory and emotion regulating areas of the brain. If you're, if your brain develops, you know, obviously you're going to have a huge surge in adolescence of hormones that are supposed to be naturally occurring and change your brain from a childlike form to an adult form. And if you have a pill that is altering the hormonal profile of your brain while you're developing, it makes sense that there would be a difference. Um, And there are some associations with girls who go on the pill very young and their long-term like outlooks in life. I think it's important to say that these are associations and these aren't like studies because it wouldn't really be ethical to, um, do like a controlled study of girls and have the potential of pregnancy when they're very young women. So these are, these are large population wide associations that we've noticed, but yeah, let me read a passage from your piece back to you here. So you said, quote, researchers also found birth control use during adolescence is associated with a small but robust increase in the risk of major depressive uh, disorder later in life. Girls who start the pill earlier are disproportionate likely to disproportionately likely to be prescribed antidepressants and diagnosed with depression. And a study of half a million women in Denmark revealed early hormonal contraceptive use may even be associated with tripled risk of suicide, end quote. Yeah. So that's how you summarize that data. And people can click through those links and, and look at those studies. Uh, Ricky, and so obviously that's concerning. There's also yeah. this, I don't even know how to get to it, like... I don't know how to talk about this, but like Dr. Hill dubs uh, sexual anti-venom of the depressants and like going on and off of them changes who women find attractive or not. And I think some of the women that you interviewed in this piece describe firsthand this experience. What's going on here? Yeah. 
One thing I want to back up on really important quickly is that tripled risk of suicide with young girls. I, it's shocking the overlap of the young, wealthy, predominantly wealthy white girls who go on the pill when they're very young and this epidemic of mental health issues that we see. And that tripled suicide risk seems to max out at two months into being on the pill. So essentially you have your, your natural adolescent hormones that are already really high, then you add on exogenous hormones. So the only reason I want to back up on that is if you're a parent putting your young daughter on the pill, please monitor her in the early phases of that, because this seems to be associated with a hugely increased risk of adverse outcomes. But that's the not so fun part of this. This is kind of the other stuff is a little more interesting to me and a little less um, of a downer. Well, that's but interesting. Yeah, yeah um, just to be clear. So as much as I want the voicemail people to come after you, you, you don't mean interesting. Like obviously you've written, you're in the middle of writing a book about um, in part teen depression. So interesting meeting you're more. Oh no, this is a little more. Yeah, this is okay. No, it's a little more pop, pop culture and a little less, um, depressing is, is my point only in saying as much. Um, that's certainly interesting to me and something that I'm underlining, but you know, let's, we'll lighten the mood a little bit here. Um, yeah, Dr. Hill calls progesterone, which is a hormone that is supposed to naturally cycle up and down throughout a woman's uh, menstrual cycle, the sexual anti-venom. And essentially that's a, that's the hormone that is more prevalent in times in your cycle where you're less likely to get pregnant. Estrogen increases at times when you're more likely and that, and, and testosterone apparently as well does increase. Um, it makes you more, more sexually interested. Um, but progesterone is, um, a lot of pills are progesterone only. And so a lot of women end up experiencing a decreased enjoyment of, of sex, a decreased libido is a very common, um, re- uh, side effect that women report. But also interestingly, women on the pill tend to prefer men's, uh, with less masculine faces than women off the pill. Um, and they, they basically like masculinize the same photos of men's faces, um, based on like predicting what a higher testosterone level would look like. They also, their pheromone receptors seem to be a little bit off. So, so women on the pill are not as in tune to, um, like potentially picking up the sense of more genetically diverse or potentially, um, higher testosterone men, um, women who are on the pill are less likely to pick the, the scent of a man who is higher testosterone, which is interesting. And Mm. if you pick a partner on the pill, you're also, um, according to research, more likely to kind of get the ick from them if you go off the pill while you're still in a relationship. So it it definitely, I mean, of course, taking, taking hormones that disrupt your natural sexual and evolutionary cycle is going to impact the way that you perceive the world. It's not to say that you should never take them or that they don't, they haven't been a net positive for women. Absolutely. They have been, and they've, they've increased our ability to be independent, to reach long-term educational goals. Like I'm not, I'm not downplaying any of that, but I do think knowledge is power here. And, um, especially with young girls, like it's, it's a conversation we need to have. Well, Ricky, great reporting, uh, really awesome. So obviously if you've got some thoughts or experience on this, send us some voicemails in and, you know. If you want to prove Ben Shapiro right that this is a third rail issue. <laughs> Yo, I think our audience will have some stuff to say about that. So I just want to encourage their, sure. their feedback. So let's talk about education savings accounts. So last week, Idaho state senators introduced a bill model after an Arizona 
expansion of these education savings accounts. And Arizona was the first state in the nation to make them universally accessible to all students. And in the last few weeks alone, Iowa and Utah have joined Arizona in that distinction. And so these education savings accounts are among, you know, a, a plethora of different school choice options available to people. I actually just have a piece out in this new newsletter that we just launched called Imbroglio today outlining what are the different forms of school choice and how do we talk about them politically. And so it's a piece I call the, the progressive Pleasantville problem, which I'll come, I'll circle back around to. But Ricky, you know, I think this is a massive, massive sea change in the way that state legislatures and then now parents are interacting with the school system. Yeah, absolutely. And this is um, like a really rapid turnaround where now we have potentially a fourth state in just a year that is joining the the movement towards educational savings accounts here and in varying degrees. And, and there's definitely a different technicality of state to state here. But um, just the broad basics is that essentially this is a taxpayer funded savings account that allows parents to seek alternatives to education that they can access if they forego their district public schools for their child. Um, and rather than just using a voucher system, which traditionally just goes straight towards tuition at a different school at a private institution, um, these are considerably more flexible um, and leave a lot more open to parents to decide how they want to spend the taxpayer money that's allocated for the education of their child, um, including potentially um, like offsetting the cost of homeschooling, um, different versions of tutoring, online classes, SAT prep, textbooks. And so, you know, there are guardrails to make sure that they're not just being pocketed, but mm -hmm. more or less in, in these States now, parents have a very radical and different, um, different option in front of them. If they can't otherwise afford private school options, this is broadening it to say, you know, take, take things into your own, in your, into your own hands, experiment with pods, experiment with homeschooling. I think the, um, the options here and the, the room for experiment experimentation here is, um, really radical and something that we really haven't seen before last year with Arizona. Right. And we, you might be confused. So trying to situate education savings accounts in the larger scheme of school choice, especially vouchers, right? I think a lot of people hear voucher and they hear education savings account and they co-mingle the two, I think for good mm -hmm. reason, because there are some similarities between the two. We had a chance to speak to Matt Barnum, who's a reporter at Chalkbeat, who I think helpfully breaks down the difference between these two. But a voucher is a uh, tuition stipend paid for by the government to pay for private school, right? So a kid wants to enroll in private school, the government says, here's a $5,000 voucher that will either pay part or all of your private school tuition. That's a sort of like OG private school choice, right? And then we have, the, I think, the, the newest generation and what now seems to be the most popular of, of new programs, the education savings account. And so that is the government providing a chunk of money to families who opt out of or don't attend public school. And the families can spend that money on approved educational expenses, including but not limited to private school tuition. So in that sense, it's a lot like a voucher because it is providing public money to, for private educational expenses. But it can, it's not only for uh, private school tuition. It could be broken up into chunks. So maybe you, you could spend 80% of it on private school tuition and then 15% of it on a tutor and 5% of it on a textbook. So, Ricky, this is obviously a massive change 
the mm-hmm. way that education is delivered in this country. I can't underscore this enough. It's, it is way beyond charters, way beyond vouchers. I think it's splitting a lot of people in the so-called school choice movement who support charter schools, uh, nonprofit, usually nonprofit institutions that run direct run schools, like, because the school being the focus there, I think in this case, there could be no, yeah. like this could go to you know people who opt out of the school system altogether. And there are about a dozen plus states in addition to the ones that we mentioned who are considering this. So this is, this, this could overnight change the way that K-12 education is delivered in a huge swath of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And just like looking at Arizona as a test case, um, just last year, they expanded it to all parents, but they've had um, one of some a version of this system in place for a while. And um, even before it was formally expanded, numbers of students that were enrolled were just skyrocketing um, post pandemic. There were less than 10,000 kids in 2019 that were accessing these programs. Today, that's over 30,000 students. I think that the pandemic, obviously, as we all know, um, really catalyzed a lot of the issues that parents were having in the school system. And also I think the experience of doing pods and different learning techniques and seeing what hybrid versions could look like, um, just broadened people's minds to the possibility that there are alternatives and even more radical alternatives like homeschooling. Um, but by and large, if you look at the public, it's a four to one, uh, measure of support in favor of education savings accounts. Um, surprisingly to me, it was straightly, slightly stronger among Democrats than Republicans. And the top reasons that people cited that they were in favor of these are um, a better academic environment, a safer academic environment, um, which I guess is pandemic related possibly. But religious instruction was the lowest reason why people said that they were in favor. That it's, it's not that they necessarily want to go to religious schools and religious alternatives. But the top reason to oppose education savings accounts is that um, it was going to potentially fund religious educators. So it's interesting that there is a disconnect between the people who are in favor and the people who are in opposition. And there's a sense that there might be um, potentially an inflated concern around religious schooling options being uh, what people are turning to here. Right. And, you know, one caveat on that data, a lot of the polling out there is conducted by pro school choice organizations, yeah. but often in conjunction with reputable polling services like YouGov. So people could, we'll link to those polls and people could look at them. And often the way that these questions are worded is really important. So people could take a look at that. And this question of let, let's take for a second for granted that a lot of progressives when asked about this without the context support it. I find this very interesting mm-hmm. because I think the more they learn about the politics of it, the less supportive I suspect they will become. And yeah. I, I find this fascinating because we support, we talked about uh, housing before, the predominant way that we provide housing to people who can't afford it in this country is through voucher programs, Section 8. If you are a progressive who is against Section 8 housing, you're going to get laughed off the stage, booed off the stage probably, right? So we support vouchers in the housing context, right? Mm-hmm. We support Medicare where you take your Medicare money and you don't have to just go to a government-run hospital, right? You don't have to go to the clinic on the corner. If You could take it to whatever doctor you want to take your Medicare to. So in the healthcare uh, realm, we support uh, people taking the government money that they get and taking it to where they want to go. In the housing realm, we do the same. And it is notable to me that we treat education separately, which is why I am 
more warm to these ideas than other people. And I'm yet to hear an explanation from people as to why we treat education differently. And so I tried to come up yeah. with one today. And the, the best explanation for why I think we could treat education differently is uh, the collective experience of school. So the idea that we are, we're becoming more individualistic as a society and that going to the same school is not just about the academic benefit of it, but it's the idea that we, we talked about civics, for example, before, right? Like it's very hard to get that civic glue and that shared sense of responsibility if you're all like sitting at home, you know, on a computer separate from everybody else. You also don't get the socialization and all this kind of stuff. So I could start getting warm to critics if they start making arguments like that. But on the face of it, it does seem like there's a glaring contradiction between the way that we treat education and the rest of uh, essential government services. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately it became a culture war issue and it's like, we're talking about CRT and, and parental rights became like a kind of nuclear topic where I, I think it should be way more um, nonpartisan, but unfortunately everything that we talk about today and every new issue that seems to pop up gets ensnared in the culture wars. So yeah. alas. Well, there's this guy, Peter Green, writing in Forbes, and he's very much against ESAs. And he says this is a radical shift in our country's approach to education. I agree with him there. And he says uh, that um, he does talk about the society-wide benefits and all that, but he says that ESAs replace that idea, like this idea that public education is a, a public good, with the notion that education is a commodity like toasters and floor lamps purchased by parents for their own personal use. So that's end quote. Now, I kind of am with him that this is a step in that direction, but what I would want to know from him and other people like Elizabeth Warren, who used to be for vouchers and now is against vouchers and ESAs, is and she sent her kid to a private school, lied about it when asked by a parent. So why is it okay for them to th them to treat education as a marketplace, right? Send their kid to a private school and also to game the public school system. So move to the right neighborhood mm -hmm. to get the fancy school with property values are high and they exclude people who are more vulnerable. Why is that okay? Or to, you know, litigate their way through the magnet school system to get their kids into the right magnet school, which are selective admissions, public schools that usually require a test. Why is that okay? But the predominant methods of school choice by low income and students of color, which are charter schools, uh, their vouchers and ESAs, why are these not acceptable? That's the big question I have for people. So Ricky, you have an answer for me on that? <laughs> I don't have an answer for you on that one, but- um, It's politics, perhaps, I think, right? Perhaps Obviously. we'll pose that one as yeah. a rhetorical question. An additional point here is we don't have a lot of data on how these ESAs are working yet because they're so new. And so the best approximation you could have is look at some of the voucher data out there. So we'll link to a couple of pieces out here to help people make sense of the data. One is by Matt Barnum, who is the voice that you heard earlier. So he looked at the data on vouchers a few years ago. And essentially like big takeaway there is that it, they're probably helpful to a lot of people, especially the most vulnerable. And often the voucher programs are designed for low-income people first. And there's been, there was, we talked about on the Citizen Stewart show I think it was either last week's episode or the week before that, some of the new data coming out about vouchers, in particular Ohio. So there was this big study done by an Ohio State University professor about Ohio's voucher program. And it looked at what happens to the kids doing the leaving, taking the vouchers, which are predominantly low-income kids of color, 
uh, and then what happens to the school system that they left? And mm -hmm. paradoxically, the school system that they left does great. Like everybody's fine. And then the kids who leave are doing better too. And so, and that's just one study in one state. So I want to right size that. And in, in the Citizen Stewart episode, we look at some other states as well, but that's the most recent comprehensive study of a statewide voucher program. And, and that's one where it's the uh, it's it's targeted towards low-income people. It's designed differently, and it's a voucher, not an ESA. And so we'll we'll have to wait and see what this data looks like when you start to see a more diverse socioeconomic group taking advantage of these programs. This is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hi, Robbie and Ricky. Um, I want to hit you guys both with a uh, kind of a left field take here. I think both of you are way more egalitarian than you are libertarians. So I uh, just wanted to hit you with that and uh, see what you guys think. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, so my question here. I'm still, I'm still in the Ravi's not that much of a libertarian category, I have to say. But well, people send in your, your, your voice. A selective list. libertarian. I think I did know? a lot of work last week to show people I might mm. be, but uh, we'll, we'll, we won't go there. We'll see. We'll but, see. So, okay, let me read you the definition of egalitarian. Well, so, my question here is, are these mutually exclusive categories? Not necessarily. I think that's a good philosophical debate. Actually, I spent a lot of college debating this woman, Margot, who was like a radical libertarian in all the political science classes I wound up taking when I was a senior. We'll talk about that another day. She probably writes for reason now. She's probably one of your colleagues. But so the egalitarian defined by, I think this is dictionary.com or something, is relating to or believing in the principle that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. I would say that defines where I want to be. I think I, like anybody, will contradict myself, and I'm sure audience know more about my contradictions than I'm probably aware of. But the equal rights part, I think you and I agree on, right? We talk about, mm -hmm. like, we talk a lot about rights on this podcast, um, you know, with the exception of people being involuntarily um, locked away in New York City, which you seem to be supportive of, but we'll talk about that another day. But um, the, and then opportunities, this is mm -hmm. very much where I am. And this is the difference between the way I talk about schools, where I'm not an equal outcomes person, I'm an equal opportunities yep, person. Same. And that's what separates me from a lot of my progressive friends. I think it's a really good debate. I don't, I don't yeah. claim that I, I, I'm not saying like this is an easy choice between these two, but I think I've, mm -hmm. you know, at this point in my lifetime, I've always been more in the camp of equal opportunity than equal outcome than a lot of my progressive friends. Yeah. And I think that's a libertarian value. I don't know. I'll say I'm, I'm egalitarian in the sense that I think we all have an equal right not to be tread upon. So. Oh my God. That's Jargon my alert. response. Jargon alert. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you everybody. Ricky, thanks for your piece. Uh, really fascinating. Um, obviously, if y'all have thoughts, uh, send us a voicemail, subscribe to the Imbroglio newsletter. It's I-M-B-R-O-G-L-I-O uh, newsletter. We're two articles in. And uh, we also have the Sweat the Technique episode dropping in the morning. So you can look up Sweat the Technique wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be right back here on Thursday. Thank you very much, everybody. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell.